0: And as we get started, uh, just in case we don't have another opportunity, um, Melissa, you and Caden, Kinley, and Alan, of course, we, we, we're going to miss you guys, but we're sure go- glad that God brought you in our midst for this time, and we'll be praying for uh, Port Aransas and Corpus Christi, uh, because we know that you guys will shine with the light of Christ there. And we will pray, correct, and help as much as possible next week. Well, last week in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we saw the gut-wrenching events, series of events, confirming that King Saul was indeed trying to kill David. King Saul's son, Jonathan, the prince and heir apparent to the throne, Recognized that the Lord had chosen David to be king. And in one of the greatest displays probably ever of serving the Lord and putting God's kingdom first, Jonathan submitted himself to his God and renewed his covenant with David, doing what he could to protect David, who was the God... God's anointed next king. What an incredibly difficult position Jonathan was in. So much so that the two of them, he and David, had to part ways, knowing, however, that their covenant before the Lord with one another had been used by God already to accomplish some incredible things, and we went over those last week. We saw how it gave them a way to find out Saul's true intentions, which was very important for both of them to know, um, point blank, up, up close and personal, and to confirm their own bond, even to make arrangements for their future descendants, as we see their covenant extended to the house of each. And it It allowed them to be able to stand firm in their commitments because it cost them both in every personable way imaginable, especially Jonathan. And it gave them a firm peace in their abiding friendship um, as they parted ways, which is very, very important. And from this point on, This point until Saul's death, David would be an outcast from the royal court. And he was an outcast with a target on his back. Now as we move into chapter 21 here in 1 Samuel, we see David trying to deal with the reality of what it means to be an outcast with a target on your back. And hunted, hunted, literally. And at first, he makes some foolish choices. Yes. It's, it's always interesting when you make this point. Um, after what we've seen so far, the head's come up. What? Yeah, he's human. He makes some foolish choices as it seems he has to learn once again how to trust God in these new and strange circumstances. Today we see how great this struggle is, and how even a hero in the faith can falter, and we also see behind the scenes how the Lord protects and delivers him, even in his sin and foolishness, using it all to accomplish his own purposes, God's purposes in the continuing preparation for the coming Messiah. That's a pretty incredible layout for the text, is it not? Isn't that something that each and every one of us needs to know? We don't take it for granted, but we are in his hands. There are some horrid consequences in chapter 22 that we're going to see, and many juxtapositioned points of behavior in both chapters 21 and 22 that for us to consider as we're reminded as we see what's going on here with David of our own weakness and our own proneness to wander. God's faithfulness and grace shine through all the messes of our sin and confusion, and we'll see that glaringly clear today. If you are able, would you please stand? I'm going to read chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. The text is going to be very close to whatever you have, but I'm going to be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible today, except for one word. And there's probably only one person in here that will know which word that is. David went to Ahimelech the priest at Nob. Ahimelech was afraid to meet David, so he said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king gave me a mission, but he told me, Don't let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I've ordered you to do. I've stationed my young men at a certain place. Now, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest told him, There is no ordinary bread on hand, however there is consecrated bread, but the young men may eat it only if they've kept themselves from women. David answered him, I swear that women are being kept from us as always when I go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. So, of course, their bodies are consecrated today. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. When the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. One of Saul's servants, detained before the Lord, was there that day. His name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. David says to Ahimelech, Do you have a spear or sword on hand? I didn't even bring my sword or my weapon since the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. "'Wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. "'If you want to take it for yourself, then take it, "'for there isn't another one here. "'There's none like it,' David said. "'Give it to me.' "'David fled that day from Saul's presence "'and went to King Achish of Gath. "'But Achish's servants said to him, "'Isn't this David, the king of the land? "'Don't they sing about him during their dances?' Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane. And in their hands, he acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see the man is crazy. Achish said to his servants, Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The first place David fled to after his parting with Jonathan was a little town called Nob, which was a couple of miles north of Jerusalem. Nob was serving as one of the cities of refuge at this time and was inhabited by a bunch of priests since the tabernacle had evidently been moved there, if you remember, after Shiloh had fallen to the Philistines earlier. What's really strange about this is that the ark wasn't in the tabernacle, it was still in Kiriath-Jerim. In other words, it looks like David was not just seeking help there, going to Nob, but he was also saying goodbye for a while to a very special place, similar in terms of affection to his farewell with Jonathan. This was a stop on the way to somewhere else to get out of harm's way. The priest in charge, Ahimelech, happened to be the great-grandson of Eli, which will play into what happens in the next chapter. Ahimelech obviously is afraid as he sees David approach. Something's not right. And David can tell the news of his fugitive status has spread very, very quickly. And people are unnerved about what to do and what to say when they're around him. Then David answers Ahimelech's question about why he's alone and looking distraught by concocting a lie about being on a secret mission from King Saul with his men hidden away somewhere. Which is kind of crazy because if you're a fugitive from the king and you tell a priest in the tabernacle, mind you, that you're on a secret mission from the guy who's trying to kill you, uh, you can see how desperate David thinks he is here. Perhaps he's trying to protect Ahimelech so the priest can honestly say he didn't know what David's plans were when he's finally approached by Saul or one of his men, but it turns out that David is still putting the priests in harm's way. The next chapter, 85 people are killed. The town is wiped out as Saul gets so angry at what had happened. If helping David was likely going to bring Ahimelech into the path of the wrath of Saul, then Ahimelech had a right to know the truth of why David was there. And he didn't really tell him. He lied outright. Now think about this for a second. When we become overcome by fear and we can't rest in the faithfulness of the Lord, we, too, become easy prey for falling into more and more sin and it usually snowballs. What looks like a sketchy way to find some security, is, which is what David is doing here, actually, it usually ends up in disgrace down the road, and we'll see how this plays out in chapter 22. David finally asked bluntly the main reason he was there, five loaves of bread, or whatever is here, But there's a problem. There's no normal common bread here. Only the bread of the presence. Every Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread were set on the table in the tabernacle's holy place. A quiet witness of what? The showbread is what? It's a witness that God sustains his people and supplies their needs. Bread. Holy bread. And when the twelve loaves were replaced each Sabbath, only the priests and their family were permitted to eat them. This is why we see the conversation in verses 4 and 5 referring to the Old Testament holiness code. Notice that David says the requirement was always kept by his men when they were out on a mission. But notice what he says after that. But how much more today will their vessels be holy? What's he saying? That is, he's saying a day when they would visit the tabernacle. So Ahimelech, gives him the bread. Now, does this story sound familiar to anybody? Yes. This is the incident that Jesus refers to in Matthew 12 verses 2 through 4. Remember? It's one of those great questions. What are you doing? And He refers to this incident to teach something very important. Most of the time, a lot of people get this completely wrong, especially if they're trying to rationalize their own unholy behavior. They go to the opposite stream of the Pharisees' questions there. His point was not that mercy overrides the mere observance of God's law. And that's usually how it's presented all the time. Just be merciful. It doesn't make any difference what God said. Jesus says something very different here. What he's teaching is that the intent of the law was fulfilled by this act of mercy by giving David this holy bread. Did you, did you get that? The intent of the law was actually fulfilled by giving them this bread, especially because it was a witness that God sustains his people and supplies their needs, and it was the only thing there. And this was the man who was anointed to be the next king and a type of the future Messiah. You could go on and on and on and on. The point is, for David, God provided his sustenance. His sustenance, Uh, we could say it this way, his daily bread. In a time of great need, even though he'd been lying to a priest in the tabernacle, foolishly trying to wheel and deal when overcome by fear and the confusion of now being an outright fugitive. For David and us, we receive our daily bread, not because we are godly. But because God is gracious. So if you were one of the ones sitting there raising your finger going, but Leviticus says this was wrong. what Jesus taught, how he used this example is to remind us, Who are we to say anything? We receive our daily bread not because we are godly, perfect, but because God is gracious, which makes us even more grateful, humble, and obedient. Now, you notice right there in this text, there's also this sentence about this person lurking, and he's got this great name, Doeg. One of Saul's servants, we learn in verse 7. We cringe when we read this part because we know that this isn't the last that we've heard of him. It's not just somebody mentioned in the text. He's going to come back to cause some trouble. And of course he will report all this to Saul. He's the one. In verse 22 of chapter 22, in fact, David admits that he knew as he saw Doeg there and that Doeg had seen what he was doing, he knew that Doeg would report what he saw and that the priest would be harmed because of him and that he did nothing to intervene. David did nothing to intervene and stop this. David, in that verse, admits that he knew he was responsible. Let that weigh on you for a moment. Then we read that David asked Ahimelech for a sword or a spear in verses 8 and 9. Lo and behold, well, before we get to the part where he, he finds out what Ahimelech has, he shows up here looking destitute. He's on the run. He doesn't have any supplies. He doesn't even have a weapon. And that's important to realize as he takes off That the level of the desperation and the fear that he was feeling. But Ahimelech doesn't just have a weapon. He has Goliath's sword. This is where they were keeping it as kind of a testimony to how, what God can do no matter how big the problem is. And David responds with something very interesting. He says, there is none, no sword like this sword. Give it to me. So what is David trusting in here? It should be clear that this is the same David who refused to wear even the armor of the king of Israel when he was Filled with the Holy Spirit for his battle with Goliath. This is the same person. And who now is all excited and rejoices in the fact that he can wield the weapon of his former pagan enemy that he used to cut off Goliath's own head. You can see the trust shifting David was no longer relying on God's strength. He was exulting in this humongous sword. Saying, there is none like that, give it to me. So how can we sum up David's brief brief passage through Nob? It was a place where his fear overcame him. And he gave in to sin, unbelief, and worldliness. David tried to protect himself with a lie. He permitted his behavior to endanger the lives of others. And he exulted in the worldly weapon he acquired. Let me ask every one of you something. In your own personal walks, when... Have you fallen the hardest in your faith? So many times it's right after one of the most unbelievable times of faith and strength and humility and love and affection and closeness to God. Sometimes it's right after that. This is right after He and Jonathan had one of the most emotional partings of two friends in the history of the world. They had found out the truth about about Saul, Jonathan's father. They had renewed their covenant. They had cried and braced, and they knew they weren't going to be able to see one another, but they were trusting God in it all. And David takes off, and somewhere in between right there, and where he gets to this place, the reality just overwhelmed him. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The next part is even stranger. Because he's going through Nob to get somewhere else. And we would imagine all sorts of places, but never Gath. Why not? Those of you who have been paying attention know that Gath was the hometown of Goliath. David fled to Gath. One of the favorite sayings in our family is, What were you thinking? Or, What are you thinking? Well, we can go, What is David thinking? This is not a good plan. It's not a good idea. Perhaps he was thinking of the maxim that we often hear now in all sorts of games of strategy, written on film, stories, whatever, that this would be an example of the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. But no way. In other words, could David really believe that since Saul is now his enemy, as well as as the Philistines' enemy, The Philistine king of Gath might be David's friend and grant him sanctuary there. That's what he's thinking. David should have realized that just the fact that he was planning this indicated how desperate he was. When Achish is my best hope, I'm in real trouble. But he never got there, folks, until he got there. Look where his fear and desperation and possibly his own self-pity at this point. But God anointed me as king. It's never going to happen. In fact, I'm going to be killed before I even get the chance. So did God really mean what he did? Will Jonathan stay loyal to me? I don't have any place to go. In fact, next chapter, we'll see how he relocates his own parents because of the threat of taking his life and anybody that's related to him to Moab. Not close when you walk there. So God's word and God's anointing of him by Samuel doesn't seem to be figuring into any of his schemes, and isn't that what we're supposed to encourage each other to do, to keep preaching to ourselves, talking to ourselves the truth of God's word, no matter what the circumstances are, and that's what the Holy Spirit does through his word to us, and that's what God does through the people of God to us as they know we are walking through tough stuff. That's the point of encouragement and conviction and bringing us back to true what is really true instead of what it looks like around us where it looks so horrible that we can't see the truth anymore. Oh, yes, we can. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you because you have placed your faith and trust upon Jesus Christ, He can bring to bear his word upon our hearts and our thinking. But we have to learn how to discipline ourselves in that kind of power to think his thoughts and to walk by his ways even when our fear makes us do the strangest things on the face of the earth that are just plain stupid. This is stupid. Why? Here goes David into Gath. There are relatives here of 200 Philistine soldiers who had parts of their bodies removed after they were killed to take back to the king of Israel to prove that he had killed at least 100 so that this man could have the king's daughter as his wife. Sure, everybody just forgot that. Hey, David, welcome. Not only that, he walked into town carrying the sword of the champion who grew up here that he had killed. Immediately, surprise, surprise, he was recognized. And the song of the Israelite women that was known so well these guys knew it, too, because it was one of those things that did not go away. It was bitter in here. It was, We're. this is bad. And we read it in the text. And we read here that he was in his hands. That's the one word I changed, because there is the word there, hands, that refers to being under arrest. It wasn't just in their presence. He wasn't just with them. They had him in custody. They immediately took David into custody, confined and arrested him, which is what in their hands means. So David concocts another the most desperate plan. He pretends to be insane. The king buys it And wants nothing to do with another mad person around him, so David is let go. And some people go, wow, you lucked out. What a great actor he is. But something for you to do today, after celebrating with mom, read Psalm 35 and Psalm 56, actually 34 and 56. If you read the title of each one, which is a part of what's passed down in Scripture, the title of Psalm 34 is, Of David. In other words, he wrote it. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Another name there of the king. Chapter 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off Terebinth, whatever that is, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And there's a little different perspective about his experience. Especially in Psalm 34, David never implies that he was lucky. He does talk about God delivering him from all his fears and his troubles. Uh, yeah. In other words, along with desperation, there is nevertheless praise, as he thinks back on this and writes. This is not to say that this gives us warrant to act foolishly so that we may be praised or come to a point of praise sometime in the future. What we should get here is that we shouldn't forget God's mercies even in our foolishness. And many of us are quick to do that because we think we worked it out or our great acting ability, that was the reason we got out of there or because we did this, we made it. The point is not that. It is that we should not forget God's mercies even in our foolishness. And that's really the theme of this whole chapter. there's a whole lot for us to consider here. I'm going to run through some things really quick because obviously the story isn't finished. In chapter 22, he goes to the cave of Adullam in his flight, and then he takes his parents up to Moab to see if he can get permission for them to escape there, and then he goes back to a forest. I mean, he's all over the place here for a while. What should we be warned about by David's behavior? If you read this to your kids, what would you think is the most important things to get them to start seeing? And what are we so quick to not want to think about? Well, there's several things. Warn this about David's behavior. Our unbelieving sins do have very real consequences. David's lie to Ahimelech brings death and destruction in the very next chapter. We may think our lies are successful in protecting us, but they will inevitably cause harm. So glorying in worldly pleasures deceives us into placing our hopes there as well, the sword. And we know where that leads, don't we? Another warning is that any believer can succumb to sin. In case you haven't figured that out, a man after God's own heart is what David's called, is still just a man at best, and no one can indulge in unbelief and sin safely and without repercussions. First Corinthians ten twelve. This is gospel truth all the way through the Bible. The apostles really get on this. There Paul writes, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Third thing we should be warned about is any of us can not only fall, but fall fast and far, much faster and much farther than we ever thought possible. David went very quickly from faithfully serving in Saul's court and leading Saul's armies to slobbering in a corner of Goliath's hometown. That's a big stretch, pretty quick. Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And we should be warned that every even very godly people will struggle with doubts and fears and resentments and broken hearts. And part of the, part of the job of the church is for us to do humble ourselves enough that we don't wear a different face when we're around our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we allow God to work through other people who are going through similar stuff. If everybody's hiding what they go through, we come in here and it's the biggest fake thing in the world's ever seen. Anybody can see it true yeah but there's nothing more beautiful than joyous humble people who walk with him and know what it is to run to the cross to experience forgiveness to bring restoration and peace and help each other knowing that we are all susceptible to these things that David went through We can also see several truths here, incredible truths, about how God deals with his people. How would you answer that here? How did God deal with David in these two little escape episodes? Well, first, God faithfully provides for his people in all of our needs. There's a lot of people in here who can testify to that. Man, I didn't know how, and you fill in the blank, and God is faithful in some way that maybe you didn't ever dream of. Dale Ralph Davis notes that in the confusion and danger and fear, David received his daily bread, which was a quiet witness that the Lord sustains people and supplies their needs. David recognizes this later. But I'm sure he ate, thankfully, even then. And so did his men. Secondly, God protects his people in danger. This is the main theme that's reflected in Psalm 34 and 56. We're going, yeah, but, well, just a second. David realized that in his lowest and darkest moments that God's unseen help was still protecting him. That was a weird scenario in Gath. But he knows that God is on his throne, and he made it out of there, and he also knows that he's God's anointed. And some of that's starting to to come together. That God protected him even when he thought it was over. But God's plan for him was not over yet. We don't know when those days and dates are. So we go each moment knowing that God is on his throne. And David realized too that while trusting God, we must then obey him in his word. And he actually says that in two verses in Psalm 56. Uh, do you think he may have realized that he overdid it quite a bit? Yeah, he did. And he focuses on truthfulness in speech in Psalm 34, verses 13 and 14. These are really interesting to put together as you look back on the actual incident. Thirdly, God deals with the people. He's God is wise in how He trains His children. Later, with hindsight, we see how God used this experience to test and train David's faith for even bigger challenges that he was getting ready to face. In other words, David was taught his weaknesses and constant need of grace. How many of you have learned that? At least once. Or hundreds of times. Do you understand what I'm saying? God orders our lives to learn how weak we are and how much we really need his grace so that we go stronger in faith. That's how you grow strong in faith. is you accept what God brings into your life and you're faithful in those times or learn to be faithful in those times or you recognize after blowing it yet once again that God is bringing you to talk to him more, to hunger for his word more, hunger for the love of his people and his church more everything is more in those categories and that is growth few of us daily seek the Lord until by painful experience we've learned our peril when we're apart from God oh yeah if we were in a different denominational setting we would hear a lot of amens right there I hope you're saying amen in your own heart. Lastly, God cares deeply for those who belong to him. Psalm 34, 17 and 18. David writes, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. He was talking about himself. In Psalm 56, verse 8, You have kept count of my tossings or wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That is precious. God deeply cares for those who belong to him. We come now to celebrating the Lord's table, which puts all this in the same picture of Christ sacrificing himself for our sin. This is the physical reminder that, that we have, a visible, physical reminder that we have of the joy that only God's people have, in Him, in our lives because we're in Him. Because look what we've just learned or been reminded of today in this passage. There is great joy coming from knowledge of those truths. Which brings us into a reverent spirit because we're privileged to to give Him reverence and respect and worship.